All right, we are continuing in our study in Revelation. We're in Revelation 14, if you can believe it. Revelation 14, and we do not have the screen up today, so get your, get your fingers out. They should be coming around the horn somewhere. Do we have the handouts going around the horn there? Take one down, pass it around. One less handout on the table. There should be plenty there. Revelation 14, we don't have the screen up this, this morning, so you need to stretch your fingers out, get your table of contents open if you need it. There's no shame in that. I'm going to go ahead and start with a quote here in Revelation 14. At the top of your page, just to kind of give you some context, now those of you who have been here each week and are following this study, you're going to find a tremendous amount of comfort this morning in how much you've learned. Um, remember last week as we concluded Revelation 13. Very, very simple. Remember we talked about two beasts in Revelation 13. We talked about a land beast. And if you remember, the word beast in, the, in this context in the Bible is basically just means an ungodly nation. Very simple. So a land beast in Revelation is the Israel, the apostate Israelites, because the land is the land of Israel. And the sea beast, very simply, is the Gentile uh, nations that are ungodly. So in this case, it's the Roman Empire. So you have a sea beast and a land beast, and you have a dragon. And if you remember, the dragon is Satan. The sea beast is made up of Gentile ungodly nations, which is the Roman Empire. And you have the land beast, which is the ungodly from Israel. So very simple. And here in Revelation 14, we're going to see this group, this familiar group, this 144,000 pops its head up again. We want to understand that this morning. We're going to start with this quote on the top of your handout. It says, St. John has just revealed the evil triad of enemies facing the early church. The dragon, the sea beast, and the land beast. He's made it clear that these enemies are implacable. That the conflict with them will require faithfulness unto death. The question again naturally arises, will the church survive such an all-out attack? In this closing section of the fourth major division of his prophecy, therefore John again addresses these fears of his audience. The action of the book comes to a halt as the apostle gives comfort and provides reasons for confidence in the coming victory of the church over all her opposition. So in this chapter, we have John is taking a moment away from the talk of all these beasts to give comfort to these seven churches that are about to go through the Great Tribulation. Let's go ahead and start in Revelation chapter 14. If you have a marker in your Bible, I would think it'd be a good idea to mark Revelation 14 because we are going to be turning a lot and you're going to be coming right back to Revelation 14. So I am going to take one of my markers out and put that in there and we will come back time and again. Let's read Revelation 14. We are attempting to get through five verses this morning. And uh, that's a lot in this because there is a lot of information to go over. So we'll see how far we get. Let's just read verses 1 through 5 together. Revelation 14, 1 through 5. Then I looked and behold a lamb standing on a mount, Zion. And with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song 
except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And their mouth was found, and in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Let's start in verse number one. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. If you would turn over to Psalm 2, Psalm 2, right in the middle of your Bible, Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a fantastic psalm to have in your back pocket as we're going over so much in Revelation and, and so much of you hear what's on the news today. Um, not because things are getting worse and worse, I don't believe that, but because the media wants you to think things are getting worse and worse. So Psalm 2 is a good one to have in your back pocket. Let's look at what the Bible says here in the second Psalm. Why do the nations, remember when we see that word nations in the Old Testament, it means Gentiles. It's the Hebrew word Gentiles. Why do the Gentiles, why do the uncovenant, why do the ungodly rage and the people plot a vain thing? Why do they do that? And the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. You know what these guys are saying, what these ungodly kings and rulers are saying when they get together? Verse 3, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. But here's God's response, just so you're not worried. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. It means confusion. The Lord's response to the ungodly trying to make plans to take over the world, the globalists of the world that are trying to take over the world, the Lord sees them and he laughs is his response. Verse 5, then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Here's what the Lord says to those who are trying to take over the world. He says, yet... I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possessions. You, Messiah, shall break them with a rod of iron. You, Jesus, will dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. You want to know what the Lord God's response is? to the old covenant people group that wanted to bring a plan against the Lord, he laughs and he talks about the birth of the Messiah. He talks about the Christmas story because he says when Jesus is born in Bethlehem, he will have the power to rule over the nations with a rod of iron. He says in verse number 10, Now therefore you better be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Hey, Joe Biden, you better listen if he can even comprehend it basic, simple sentence. For those of you who are in leadership, better listen. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. You better kiss the son. Why? Lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. This is no doubt in the mind of John as he's writing in Revelation 14 as we see this idea of setting his um, a, a, a Messiah or Jesus or the Lamb is on this Mount Zion. Now, I have a mountain behind me on the board. A mountain in the Bible, I'd like to remind you, 
the mountain theme or the mountain motif in the Bible, motif in the Bible, is God's power and rule. So when you see the mountain of God, we're talking about God's power and rule. Uh, let me show you a couple of those references. Uh, it's, it's first referenced uh, as the mountain of Eden, going all the way to the creation story. So Ezekiel chapter 28 is a very interesting passage. Ezekiel 28, now we could talk about the, the context of this, but for the sake of our discussion this morning, just look at the, the simple words in Ezekiel 28, and uh, we'll talk about how to break this down another time. But a reference to the Garden of Eden here, it says, you were, per, you were in Eden, the Garden of God, and every precious stone was your covering. The Sardis, and he goes through all these things. Verse 14, you were the anointed cherub who covereth. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. And so here in Ezekiel 28, interesting passage. Uh, we'll go over it another time as, as to what this is talking about. But for the sake of our study this morning, I just want you to see that in the Garden of Eden, a lot of people think of the Garden of Eden as like a meadow. I know as, as a child, I kind of always thought of it as almost a valley where there was a pool and a waterfall in it. And I, that's just the image I got as a kid. I always saw in the flannel graph, for those of you who had flannel graph as a kid, I always kind of saw a waterfall coming down and, and a nice big pool with you know, animals on either side. So I always imagined it in a valley because that's where I saw that where I grew up. But you know, the Bible refers to the Garden of Eden as a mountain. And the mountain theming in the Bible is always talking about a place where God dwells. Um, following, this, is, this is following a prophecy throughout the Old Testament that there will be a reestablishment of the mountain of the Lord's house. If you would go to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, just to your left, a few books. Isaiah chapter 2, if you're still in Ezekiel, that is. Now that you know this is coming, and now that you know after John talks about the beast, the land beast, the sea beast, and the dragon, now that we know who this is talking about, and in, in Revelation 14 we see the, the Lamb of God on Mount Zion with 144,000. Let's go back and see some of these prophecies here that will make much more sense now. Isaiah chapter 2 Verses 1 through 4, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. He says, it shall come to pass, so it's prophecy, in the latter days, that's talking about when Christ comes, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. Does this remind you of some things Jesus said? A city on a hill cannot be hid. Jerusalem is the city on a hill. So you're getting this imagery of Jerusalem as the headquarters of the Old Covenant, this, this fellowship place of his bride of the Old Covenant, is, is mimicking a, a sort of Edenic-like state. It's like Eden. And then when Jesus comes, he says, how in the world did I give you a city on a hill and you've hid your light? You had to work pretty hard to hide on a hill, guys. Right? That was Jesus' message. So here in Isaiah chapter 2, he says, It will come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. And what will happen? All nations shall flow to it. Flow uphill? You better believe it. All the nations will come uphill. They'll flow uphill. That, that might defy gravity, but I'll tell you this. Uh, with the Lord and the Holy Spirit being poured out, the nations are attracted to this new mountain that the Lamb is standing on. He said, if I be what? Lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. 
Verse 3, many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. He, uh, and we shall walk in his paths. Look at this. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's a reference to Acts chapter 2 with the, with the day of Pentecost. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. That's talking about using military equipment and the funds of the military will be used for harvesting food to feed the poor and to, and to feed those that are hungry. There's coming a day, as the Bible is saying here, that as the mountain of the Lord is established and Jesus is lifted up high, remember this also goes, well, we'll get there in a second in Daniel 2. Remember the stone that becomes a mountain. And it says when that happens, people will beat their swords, a military weapon to kill, they're going to change the, their usage of swords into plowshares. The, the, the prophecy is that all the money that was spent on military defense, it's the number one expenditure for the U.S. government, our defense. The Bible here says one day we will beat our swords and change them into plowshares and our, our spears into pruning hooks to catch fish. And the nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn. See that process word? You shall not learn of war anymore. If you would go to your right to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2 in uh, the minor prophets here. Daniel 2, we've talked about this many times, so we won't spend too much time on it. But in Daniel chapter 2, we see this imagery that Nebuchadnezzar has. You see, remember the statue Nebuchadnezzar has, and it's a timeline statue. From his head to his feet, it's, it's four nations talked about. Remember, the head is Babylon. It's the head of gold. And Daniel says, you're the head of gold. You're the top, top one. And they're taken over by another kingdom. The Medes and Persians is what we call that. They're conquered by Alexander the Great with Greece. The Greek, the Greek culture begins to infiltrate the world. And then, shortly before Christ is born, the Roman Empire takes over, and that's the legs of iron. And then we look over in the imagery. Remember in the imagery, it says over here, Verse 33, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut without hands. That's Jesus. That's the reference to the virgin birth. A stone made without hands. And what happened to the stone? It struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. What is that talking about? Jesus toppled the nations, the empires of the world came crashing down when Christ was born. But what happens to this little stone cut without hands? Verse 35, the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were crushed together, became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. That's a theme you can see in Psalm 1, remember? And, and the ungodly are not so, but they're like the chaff, which the wind drives away and cannot stand in the day of judgment. Remember that passage? The wind carried them all so that there was no trace found. And that stone that struck the image, what does it do, guys? It becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. Interesting. Let's go, if you would, to your left, Psalm 87. Psalm 87. I just want you to see how powerful this is all throughout the Bible. And as you could probably guess, I'm taking a lot of stuff out for this study. Psalm 87. Psalm 87 in verse number 1. His foundations is in the holy mountains. If you would go to your right, Micah chapter 4, the, uh, the minor prophet Micah, Micah chapter 4. 
Micah 4. Micah 4, and look if you would in verses 1 through 5. Now this one's going to get you. There's some cool information in this one. Micah 4, 1 through 5. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. We keep seeing that phrase, don't we? It's a reference to what? The coming of Jesus, his first coming. Shall come to pass in the latter days of the old covenant, if that helps you understand that. That the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. Oh, what are we quoting here? Quoting Isaiah 2, aren't we? You just read it. And shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow to it. You just read this. Many nations shall say, come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. <clears throat> For out of fear, or out of Zion, the law shall go forth and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, an Acts 2 reference. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. There it is again, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn of war anymore. Now look at this very carefully. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree. Why is that important? Because it was prophesied that Israel is a vine. That Israel had fig trees that were providing health for the nations. Providing comfort and support for the nations. But does that sound familiar to you? Hold your place where you are, if you would, and turn over to Matthew chapter 21. So what is the significance of Malachi, or Micah? Well, Jesus wanted Israel to bring forth fruit. Remember, this is a big fruit thing. But in Matthew chapter 21, in verses 19 through 21, remember Jesus came seeing a fig tree by the road? And it came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And what does he say? Let no fruit grow on you forever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? Jesus answers them and say, says, Assuredly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, look what he says. This is going to make so much sense to you and you've heard this your whole life. Assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a follower of Christ... You just saw a fig tree in Israel wither away. But if you have faith and follow me, do not doubt. You will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but look what else you'll do. But also, if you say to this, what? Mountain. This mountain. Be removed and cast in the sea. It will be done. Does that not make a whole lot more sense to you? It's a mountain theme. This Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. You think the fig tree being destroyed was amazing? This whole mountain is going down. Why? Because I'm going to reestablish the mountain of the Lord upon the mountain of mountains, and nations will flow to it. Isn't that incredible? Don't, doesn't it bother you how much that's taken out of context and taught? Look at Micah chapter 4. Let me show you something one more time. But everyone shall sit, verse 4, everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree. See, the prophecy is significant in Micah 4 because when Messiah comes, you don't have to submit to the, to the uh, false prophets in Israel to try and get a piece of the Israeli fig tree. You get your own fig tree. 
You get your own vine when Messiah comes. In other words, can I say it this way? You're not beholden to a people group when Messiah comes. It is a personal relationship with the Lord. You have access to your own nutrients, to your own protection from the Son by the Holy Spirit. For there is one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. You have access to the throne and come boldly before him through Christ. You have your own nutrients because of the Lord. When Messiah comes, he builds his mountain on top of the mountains. And every man has his own fig tree and his own vine. Look at verse number 5. For all people walk, each. That's the emphasis of verse 4. It's an individual thing when Christ comes. It's not a national ethnic thing. It's individual. For all people walk, each, in the name of his God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. You've got to make up your own mind. I'm going to read you a quote here from Matthew Henry in Micah chapter 5. So in, in his commentary on, on Micah 5, and I believe I meant to say Micah 4. I'm sorry about that. I wrote that wrong. This is his commentary on, on what we just read in Micah 4. Matthew Henry says, They shall sit safely. None shall disturb them. What's he talking about? Let's, in context, get this. This is really powerful. Those that are followers of Christ when Messiah comes... Those people, is what he's talking about, will sit securely and shall not disturb themselves, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, enjoying the fruit of them and needing no other shelter than the leaves of them. None shall make them afraid. Not only there shall uh, be nothing that is likely to frighten them, and they shall not be disposed to fear under the dominion of Christ as that of Solomon. There shall be abundance of peace." That's the kind of preaching you got in the 1800s. In the 1800s, if you went to church and you read Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, your pastor would be preaching on the dominion of Christ. Amen, amen. Let's move on. We'll just take a couple, a couple more thoughts here and we'll take a break. And let's go back to Revelation 14. Again, not only is the lamb, the lamb is on this mountain, we see in verse number one, then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion, but he's not alone. See, it was, if you're, the reason this is significant is if you remember, there's, it's always been alone on a mountain. Remember, Moses goes up to the mountaintop with the Lord, that's where he meets him, and no one can come up with him. And what did the people do? The people said, he should have been back by now. We better find something to worship apart from this. He's late. And let me just tell you something. With all this rapture talk today, there's a lot of people who think Jesus is late. Because all they've been hearing is, listen, Max, your credit card's out. Don't have kids. You'll never meet your grandkids. Buy the cheapest house you can. Put up the cheapest metal buildings we possibly can. Nothing's going to last. Jesus is five to years tops. And we have a whole generation of people that are determined that things will get worse Go in, go, go in the corner and cry because Jesus is coming back any moment. It's just so bad. And you know what's happening to those people as they become 60, 70, 80, 90, and plus? You know what it is? He should have been back by now. I mean, I maxed out my credit cards in the 70s. Hal Lindsey told me to. And where is he? But you know what can happen now? Not Moses doesn't go up on the mountain by himself anymore. And that is the significance of this first verse. I see the lamb upon, upon the top of Mount Zion. In other words, what John is saying here in Revelation 14.1 
is that the mountain prophecies have come true. The Messiah has come. His kingdom is above all kingdoms. He is on the mountain, but guess what? He's not by himself. And John pans back and he sees a great multitude with him. It's 144,000 that are with him. And he looks and he sees on, his, on their foreheads are written the name of the Father. This is significant. Let me read from your handout. The Lamb is not alone on this mountain. He has with him 144,000 sealed on their foreheads. Now this is the same group, by the way, that we see in Revelation 7. And in Revelation 3.12, we read that if you love the Lord, he's going to put his name and write his name on you. The 144,000 are members of the church from the nation of Israel in the first century. I'll, I'll get into that a little bit further as we develop this text a little bit more. Looking at these 144,000, who are they? Well, let's just go ahead and establish the idea that this is used by many to prove that you go to heaven when you die. This is used by the Jehovah's Witnesses as we talked about during break. But who are these people? Well, we learn in Revelation 7, we learn quite a bit about them. In Revelation 7, we learn that this group is 12,000 from each tribe. We learn that they are virgins. Uh, we learn many things about them. And now we see this vision, this heavenly vision of the, the Lamb of God on top of Mount Zion. What's this talking about? It's the prophecy that when Jesus comes, he will sit on top of the highest mountain. Doesn't this kind of remind you of Matthew 4 when Satan is tempting the devil? Uh, uh, Satan is the devil. When Satan is tempting the Lord and he brings him up to the highest point, he says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And the Lord says, get thee behind me, right? Well, he said that to Peter. But he starts quoting Deuteronomy. He says, you have no other gods but the Lord God. And he starts quoting all this Deuteronomy stuff. Well, now we see in Revelation 14 that the Lamb indeed is on top of the mountain. He didn't need Satan's help for that. He owns all the nations. And here we see with him 144,000. And his Father's name is written on their foreheads. Who are these people? Well, I'll give you the answer and then, we'll, then I'll, show you how I, I'll show you my work. I'll give you my conclusion and I'll show you my work. The, the conclusion is that these are those that are of ethnic Israel. They are saved in the first century. They are given the nickname, the first fruits of the resurrection. Why? Because they are the first converts on the earth from Israel. And the Lord has a special name for those people. They're called the first fruits. And these right here all come together. It says, let's go ahead and look at verse number two. I heard a voice from heaven, like a voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. So, Let's get in context. John is looking up. He sees the lamb on top of the mountain and he hears a voice that's powerful, like thunder. And he sees like many, many waters. And then he hears the sound of harpists playing their harps. So here we have this voice that's more powerful than anything you can imagine. And then we hear a heavenly orchestra. We're worshiping. We're, we're, we're in awe of this one whose voice sounds like many waters and of thunders. And we hear this heavenly orchestra from these angelic beings. And then in verse number three, he says, They sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures, a reference to chapter four, and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. Now this, this very familiar voice of the Lord is strong. I'm reading it from your handout. And it is now accompanied by the tender worship of those redeemed from the land of Israel. This was a unique song. 
which only those who were among the 144,000 knew and sang. They were accompanied by a heavenly orchestra. A new song is sung throughout the Bible due to new victories won, new revelations given, and new depth of relationships made with the Lord. Let's look at a couple examples. Put your marker back in Revelation 14. What is this new song all about? Well, it's when new victories are won, new revelations are given, new depths of relationships are understood with the Lord. Revelation chapter 5, right next to us, in verse number 9. They sung a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Psalm 33, in the very middle of your Bible, we'll look at three in Psalm and be done with this. Right in the middle of your Bible, we'll just look at three of these real quick and, and move on. Psalm 33. I just want to show you this, this theming here of a new song, and then it'll all come together. Psalm 33. And look, if you would, in verse number three. Sing to him... A new song. For context, verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. For praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the heart. Make melody to him with instruments of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. Psalm 40, just to the right of that. Psalm 40 in verse number 3. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it with fear and will trust in the Lord. Psalm 144 in verse number 9. Psalm 144. We would call that the 144th Psalm. These aren't chapters. The only book in the Bible you don't refer to as chapters. These are songs. This is the 144th Psalm. Verse number 9. I will sing a new song to you, O God. On a harp of ten strings, I will sing praises to you. What is this new song all about in the Bible? Well, in the context of each of those, a new song is sung when new victories are won, new depth of relationship is understood, new revelation given. You sing a new song. Why? Because your song is even with the victory you just experienced, the new thing that you just learned. When you hear something that's good from the Word of God and you learn something, something comes together, and you say, Lord, thank you for this. That's a new song from you. That's a new uh, worship that's never been given from you. In our freshness with the Lord and the Holy Spirit, we should be singing these new songs as, as, as often as we can. Verse number 3, Revelation 14 now. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures, before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the, good word here, land. I know your Bible says earth probably. Uh, it, this word in the Greek is not cosmos. It's not world or globe but it's actually pronounced gay, and it's where we get the word geo from, geographical, geo whatever. And it means land. And we know in the book of Revelation, when we see the word land, it's talking about the land of what? Israel. Let's read from our handout here. <clears throat> this was a unique song which only those among the 144,000 knew and sang. They were accompanied by a heavenly orchestra, a new song is sung throughout the Bible due to new victories won, new revelations given, new depths of relationships made with the Lord. This indicates that we will worship the Lord in a unique way when we go through trials together. You know the importance of us meeting in this room? We need to, we need to hurt together, you guys. We need to go through trials as a church family. 
That's because we can uniquely worship the Lord in a very unique way when we go through junk together. These 144,000 all got saved probably during the book of Acts. They were all uniquely coming out of the Old Covenant. They were all uniquely fighting against... Can you imagine them getting in a room saying, yep, my family disowned me again. Yep, me too. They think we're supposed to go to the, the new feast, but praise the Lord, Jesus has taken the ceremonial feasts away. Yeah, I know they didn't understand mine either. Can you imagine the conversations? So when they got before the Lord, they sung a new song no one had ever heard. Yeah, I guess so. Pretty unique. Look, if you would, at verses 4 and 5. Who were these people anyway? Well, these are the ones who were not defiled with women. Now, we immediately say, oh, they're virgins. Our culture says, oh, they, they haven't been married, or that's the point, right? Well, let's think about this. What's the context here? I put this in your handout. This will greatly help you understand this, this passage. This is in contrast to the great harlot in Revelation 17. So in just three chapters, let's turn over there, in three chapters over, Revelation 17, we're going to read about, we'll just look at the first two verses for context here. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Does that make more sense to you now? What are the waters here? The Gentile nations, Gentile ways, the mark of the beast, accepting Rome. And this great harlot, you know, what her, you know what her characteristic was? She was just like in Psalm 1 with the ungodly, sitting down with the ungodly, taking their counsel. She's just sitting down among what? Many waters. Does that make a whole lot more sense now? The great harlot here is Israel. They are apostate Israelites. And this great harlot is what they've been called throughout the Old Testament. So you have virgins... So this is not talking necessarily about those that are taking a, a, a vow of, of never knowing a person, if I'm using a euphemism there. This is talking about those who are pure in contrast to the great harlot. Verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication. Now, did all the kings know all of these people? No. It means they're subjecting themselves to kings. It's spiritual adultery. They are going against their husband in the old covenant, the Lord God. And the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Were they literally made drunk? No. They were intoxicated or controlled by the substance of their adultery before the Lord. So in verse number, in chapter 14, we are learning about another group. And they are virgins, pure, undefiled before the Lord. For they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among the thousands who are redeemed from what? The earth. This is none other than apostate. 